Hi, everyone. Welcome to the new Grief and Rebirth podcast, Rebirth Series, where I will be chatting with special, inspiring people who have grieved, met their challenges, chosen to heal, and have experienced the blessing of rebirth. This new Rebirth Series is inspired by a comment from my son made while I was on my healing journey after my precious husband died next to me in a tragic car accident. Mom, he said, there has been nothing worse than seeing you in total despair and nothing better than seeing you able to have joy again. From my heart, I wish this for each of you. Be sure to give a listen. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you today from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Delighted to welcome Natalie Vecchioni to our Grief and Rebirth podcast, Rebirth Series. The acronym FASD stands for Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders, which describes the range of effects that can occur in an individual whose mother drank alcohol during pregnancy. These effects may include physical, mental, behavioral, and or learning disabilities with possible lifelong implications. Natalie is the co-founder of FASD Hope, whose mission is to provide awareness, information, and inspiration for people whose lives have been touched by FASD. She is also the producer and host of the FASD Hope podcast series and FASD parent advocate a special needs homeschool parent mentor and a peer support mentor. It has been estimated that one in 20 children in the United States have an FASD and it is the most common developmental disability in the Western world. No amount of alcohol is safe during pregnancy. FASD is the most misdiagnosed, undiagnosed and underdiagnosed of all developmental disabilities. Natalie, who will be speaking to us from rural North Carolina, is the co-author of the book, Blazing New Homeschool Trails, Educating and Launching Teens with Developmental Disabilities. Her story is a true life story of triumphing over daunting obstacles and finding rebirth, which includes reinventing her career into a calling to help those parents, families, and loved ones whose lives have been touched by FASD. Hi, Natalie. It's such a pleasure to welcome you to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Irene, thank you so much. I can go on and on with too many compliments, but you're pretty amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Can I just take you wherever I go? (laughs) (laughs) You're not the first person who said that to me. I really like, even though it's sometimes, I really like people to know who I'm interviewing because before we start to yak, I mean, you've accomplished so much and you've been through so much. it's part of this journey that I'm, I was meant to be on. Yeah. 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 I, I believe that. So let's start this way. How about telling us about your background, how you met your husband, John, and why you chose to grow your family through domestic adoption? Sure thing. So my husband and I met 
uh, actually 30 years ago this month, we met wow. at college. We met at East Carolina University here in North Carolina. So even though we lived up and down the East Coast, we ended up finally coming back to North Carolina. And when we met, uh, we were friends. We were in a jazz band together. Oh, and cool. Wait, in college. Stop. What did you play? I have to ask that. <laughs> I am a flutist and my husband's a bassist. And I grew up playing the violin. The oh my goodness. Stuff. I love that. <laughs> I love that. So, and I have a soft, soft spot for string players. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> More reasons why I like you, Irene. Thank so you. my husband and I met in, in jazz band and uh, he walked me to my car one evening after uh, practice and, and we became friends. And then, you know, we realized that we both had a lot in common and, and we started dating and um, just before we started dating, actually a month before we started dating, I had my first um, laparoscopy. I had symptoms of endometriosis beginning when I was 16. And, and I had very severe symptoms. In fact, when I was in high school, I would go to the ER because I was either hemorrhaging or having, mm -hmm. you know, pain that nobody could explain. And and I have a familial history of endometriosis on, on my mother's side of my family. And, um, you know, my mother would mention when, when I was, you know, in high school, she would mention to the doctors, oh, we have a familial history. Could it be endometriosis? And we were dismissed, um, you know, oh, no, she's too young. She's only 16. So, so my endometriosis pro progressed and became increasingly worse. And uh, a month before my husband and I started dating, I had this laparoscopy um, here in North Carolina. Uh, it was by a wonderful um, endometriosis specialist in Raleigh. And she was going in just to do an exploratory surgery. She was the first surgeon, I think out of about five that I had seen who actually said, okay, I think you do have it. And, and let's do a laparoscopy. I mean, you and this was in pain all the time. I was, I was in such debilitating pain, Irene. I mean, like living it, I know many of you are I'm sure you've talked with people about living with chronic pain and chronic illness. It really just, just chips away at you. It chips away at, you know, you physically, but also, you know, your soul, your you, internally Everything. just, so, um, so I went into this surgery um, 30 years ago and uh, the doctor said, okay, I only expect it to be, you know, a little bit, you know, we're just going to go and see what's in there. So I wake up hours, hours later, and she was in there for four hours cleaning up. And she had told me, she patted my arm. And the first thing she said was, Natalie, I am so sorry. Nobody believed you. I have never seen a case this bad in someone this young in my, in my years of practice. Wow. And she cried and I just knew, oh my goodness. Okay. Well, okay. Here, here, here we go. So she cleaned me out, you know, um, just, you know, with the laparoscopy and she told me there's a really good chances. And this was 30 years ago, Irene. So we know the progress of fertility. We know the progress of surgery and everything, but 30 years ago, um, the, the surgeon said, there's a really good chance you're not going to be able to conceive. And if you do, there's a really good chance you're not going to be able to carry full term because that's how bad your endometriosis is. Wow. So I, you know, I took that and I was just like, okay. And, and it I'm wasn't gonna... a hysterectomy. It wasn't like, no, so I ended up having a hysterectomy, but not until years later, not until a few years later. And, and, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, but um, so, so this was just 
you know, before my husband and I started dating and he, he was friends with me. In fact, he took notes in classes while I was missing class for my surgery. He took notes and, um, you know, after, uh, about a month later we started, he, he, <laughs> I'll never forget his line. He said, you know, we're really great friends and you and I seem to date the wrong people. What if we started dating each other? And, and my line, which he always teases me, my line was, well, what if I lose you as a friend and his line, and I'll, I'll use the voice he used, well, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> if he's listening, honey, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I had to share the story though. It's a great so, story. So we started dating and that was April of 1992. And 30 years later, we're, we're wow. married and we have two amazing kids. And so he knew going into it and, and when we started dating, I told him what the surgeon told me. And, and this is how I knew Irene, that he was just meant to be my man. He, he, I said, you know, there's a really good chance I'm not going to be able to get pregnant. And there's even a better chance that if I do get pregnant, that I won't be able to carry a child for full turn. And he said, I love you because you're Natalie, not because you can get pregnant. And if you can't get pregnant, we will adopt. And that's when I said, okay, God, thank you for sending me my, my soulmate, my soulmate. So we married uh, three years later uh, when we were in grad school, we moved to Miami, uh, Florida, and we went to grad school in Miami. Right. And oh, I went to university of Miami and I grew up ah! Miami. <laughs> another reason why I like you, Irene. Yes, we are Canes. We are Canes proud. Right. And uh, that's when we started shortly after we married. That's when we started trying to conceive. And that's when we saw a fertility specialist. And again, this was in the early 90s. So so much has changed since then. And um, the, the surgeon we saw, the first surgeon we saw said, OK, you know, we got to try. We got to try. And, and I started on fertility drugs. And at the time, you know, nobody told me that the stuff that I was taking would make me sicker. So, you know, with each attempt, and this is back in 1995 when, you know, insurance never covered all these. So, so we were going into debt, trying to get pregnant because the doctors were saying, this is now's the time you have to get pregnant now. So with each attempt, we, and, and we wouldn't even make it sometimes to a full attempt. Sometimes we'd only make it to part of the medication. And then my body would just kind of shut down. Um, I would get sicker. And after I believe our second attempt at in vitro, and again, didn't even make it to the, to that stage, just starting the medication. Um, I lost one of my ovaries. I had a, a cyst and I lost one of my oh, ovaries. God. And again, so this is, I'm in my early twenties, early mid twenties. And, um, the surgeon I was with, you know, just said, okay, let's try this. And, and my husband said, let's, let's try another surgeon. And at that point we were almost done with graduate school. So we found, you know, whom we thought was the best surgeon, the, the best in vitro uh, specialist in Miami, who was wonderful. He, he was fantastic. And uh, this was our last attempt. I had one ovary left and I couldn't blow it, you know, and uh, it was right after I finished graduate school. My husband had finished graduate school. We were just working. And, you know, most young couples that age, they're not thinking and this intensely, you know, we have to have a family now because your body won't let you if you wait. 
So this is part of my broken story, which, you know, we'll we'll talk about the rebirth. This is totally part of my broken story. This is me being broken physically and emotionally. Uh, I mean, here you were like kind of a mess in my own. Oh my goodness. And so many, you know, so many of my friends said, you know, my husband, my spouse, my, my boyfriend would never have stayed with me throughout all that. And I was like, I, I, I'm blessed. I am so blessed. He, he not once did he ever even think about, you know, really leaving. Really oh my goodness. You. Oh my goodness. So our last attempt was in 1998. So uh, three years after we first started trying um, and a wonderful surgeon, very honest and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is a plan and everything. And we started, you know, started the medication and my ovary looked, you know, my numbers were looking pretty good. My, you were taking blood, num- you know, my blood account the night before I was supposed to have my eggs extracted. I get a phone call from the surgeon and I was sitting in the kitchen and I remember it just as clear as we're talking my surgeon said, Natalie, I'm so sorry. And I, I said, what? We haven't even done anything yet, doctor. And he said, your, your numbers literally went from perfect to nothing. He wow. said, I'm really worried that this ovary has also been infiltrated by endometriosis. And he said, wow. we can't, we can't go on. And that was the beginning of, of different um, you know, we, we grieved, we knew, okay, couldn't, couldn't do this anymore. Um, my husband took a job in Philadelphia. We moved to Philly and I saw, um, the following year, you know, I was again, still sick, very sick, no quality of life and saw another surgeon, uh, and, and told him, you know, if there's no chance of me getting pregnant, then I need a hysterectomy because I, I and I, again, late nineties still, you know, so much has changed since then. And, uh, Excuse he, me, I just want to ask you, Natalie, could you define for everybody exactly what is endometriosis for people? Yes. who don't know What is that? a? So endometriosis is when the lining in your uterus goes outside of the uterus and invades different areas of your body. And it's, you know, people usually, women usually discover it when they're trying to conceive because it's, you know, one of the leading causes of infertility. Uh, But it's also like me, you know, it happens in women younger and younger, and they're learning more about it. They, you know, there's a lot of research done about Yes, it's familial. It runs in families. It's also autoimmune. You know, it's your body really attacking itself and it feeds, um, you know, similar to cancer in that it feeds off of hormones, you know, and it feeds off of blood supply. So what I was doing those years, Irene, in trying to conceive was I was making myself sicker because I'm feeding my body hormones, you know, and and my, my body's just shutting down because my endometriosis was so severe. So finally, this doctor, this wonderful surgeon in Philly said, you know, I never say this. And he was a fertility specialist, but he also specialized in endometriosis and reproductive endocrinology. And he said, I I never say this. And this was just before he retired. He said, but yeah, I think a hysterectomy would be a quality of life improvement for you. So in September of 1999, I had a total abdominal hysterectomy. 
And I was 28 years old and that was physically broken. Literally, I had to walk again, Irene, because that's how bad it was. And my surgeon had another surgeon in there, my um, GI surgeon, who I had seen for a lot of symptoms, and they were both in there and they both said, if we had waited six more months, you would have had to have your bowel resection. That's how bad. Oh, my God. Yeah. 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 So, um, and you know, they, with endometriosis, not only is the active endometriosis part of the disease, but when you have the excisions, when you have it removed, you know, through laparoscopy, um, it leaves behind adhesions. And we all know adhesions is scarring. It's internal scarring. And my adhesions actually were just as bad as the active endometriosis. In fact, in some parts of my body, especially my bladder, and I think around my, um, my lower GI, it was worse. The adhesions were actually worse. So, um, I want to say they spent about six hours cleaning me out. And I remember going to the only room they had left in the hospital. It was uh, Thomas Jefferson university hospital in Philadelphia, a wonderful hospital. Um, the only room that they had left because it was also, it happened to be, um, we were having a a tropical storm or something, just some sort of craziness happening, uh, was in the, uh, women's cancer unit. Wow. So I was the youngest patient on the unit and I was the only patient who was not there for cancer. And my mother, who is an RN, uh, she had permission to stay with me in my room and she's tough. She's a tough nurse. She had me walking the next day because she knew that's what I needed in order to start recovering. And she had me walking for two reasons. First of all, of course, for me and to help my recovery so that I wouldn't have to stay in the hospital longer than I had to. But secondly, she knew the unit I was in. She knew I was in the the women's cancer unit and she knew that almost every patient on that unit was there for cancer surgery. And she wanted me to walk around the unit so that those women could see me walk so that they could start walking. Wow, wow, and again, wow. part of my rebirth, I did not know that brokenness inside me, Irene, was part of my rebirth story, part of my physical and my emotional rebirth. So long story trying yeah, to make this. Originally, I thought that you were going to say that your mom wanted you out of there because she thought it would be so depressing for you to be around these women. But she, in the, instead, she wanted you there to help them. To help them. And she said, she said, well, you know, when afterwards, when I took a nap and and she'd have me do, you know, dragging my IV pole hunched over because I had abdominal. So I'm just like, you know, gutted out. She said she noticed a few patients afterwards, slowly walking around with their IV poles. And uh, yeah, I'll, there was even music playing and I remember the music and I just remember everything about that moment. And that was one of those moments I was like, okay this is what I was meant to do. This is what, what was meant to happen, even though I didn't understand at the time. And I was grieving so much at the time. I mean, when you lose part of your body, you know, um, no matter what it is, you know, whether it be internally a limb, anything, when you lose a part of your physical self, there's so much grief involved in it. Oh, and it's you a know? trauma. It's a trauma. It is. It is. So about, um, you know, and again, 
you know, my, my husband, he just, he stood by me and, and knew that, you know, this was the journey that, that God had us on. And, um, you know, so we gave ourselves some time before we started the adoption process. Uh, we started the adoption process in, in 2000. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so about a year later, and for those of you who have adopted or who are familiar with adoption, it's a very long, arduous journey. And there's a lot of paperwork and a lot of visits and a lot of a whole bunch of did stuff. Did you go through an agency or through a church? Or- we did. So we actually went through an agency. Um, yeah, originally. So here's here's another part rebirth component of our story. So we originally started out with a, um, a religious nonprofit agency. And then September 11th happened. Oh my. And we were on the waiting list with all these other families. And that, that update that winter was, um, we're not having any placements. You need to start finding other agencies because we're not having any placements. And as what I know now as a parent advocate and as an advocate for adoption, that's actually a good thing when there are less placements, because that means that more birth moms are making plans and getting support for their child, which is a good thing, you know? So looking back at it with, with the view, with the lens that I have now, I know that that's a good thing because so many of those birth moms, it made them reconsider and it made them say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to raise my child. So, um, fast forward to 2002 um again you know no no placement so we went with another agency and it's this like agency, everything you did though everything was a little problematic everything was like a little it a, was a hill or a mountain to climb yeah it was an obstacle it was like a hurdle you know it was like uh-huh. okay here's this hurdle here's this hurdle but with hurdles we have to keep on going and right. and with hurdles if you if you you know i i i'm not really into sports i'm you know more music you know, and podcasting now. Uh, yeah. But, you know, when you watch somebody running hurdles, there's a time where it's flat and that's where you kind of get your breath and you get your strength and then you get ready for that next hurdle. So that's what that time in between was. We were kind of getting our breath and getting ready for the next hurdle. So uh, we received a phone call um, that there was an agency actually looking for married couples. And, and, you know, we were like, Hey, that's us. So we applied quickly. And actually we applied on my husband's birthday, which, um, I'll, I'll, I'll save the plot twist for just a second. Um, you know, my husband's begrudgingly filling out all this paperwork again on his birthday. And he's like, Oh, and, but, but yet he did it. And, and, and I, I love him because, you know, he, he, for so many reasons, but he did it. And two and a half weeks later, little did we know that that night on my husband's birthday, when we were filling out our paperwork for this new agency, our son was being born two and a half hours away from us. Our son was born on my husband's birthday. So if that's not a sign from God saying, this is your child. And that was one of the first things a social worker told us. So our son was considered a special medical needs um, birth. Um, and which we later found out was all related to his FASD and, and, you know, his exposure, uh, when he was in his birth mother's womb, um, two and a half weeks later, we get the phone call and, uh, Hey, we, a birth mom has picked you. 
we have we have a child for you. And I, of course, I, I start crying because this is a call I've been waiting for for years. And, wow. you know, I just fell on my knees and just, you know, thanking God. And and the first thing she says was, you know, he's special medical needs, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm writing everything down fastidiously. This is before. And this doesn't turn you off or scare you or anything. No, no, no. Oh, what am I getting into? No, no. Because um, as a music therapist, prior to my reinvention, I worked a lot with kids with special needs and medical needs. Oh, that's so accidents. I knew that, you know, these kids have so many gifts inside of them that the world discounts, but that you're, you're, if you're blessed enough, you get to see those gifts. So, um, no, I just kept writing and the, the seal, the, the, the deal, the seal on the deal was, she said, and he was born on this date and it was my husband's birthday. And I said, when do we pick him up? Meant to be, meant to be. <laughs> so we, you know, he had a lot of specialists and, and this ties into the FASD story. Um, we, um, you know, our son had a lot of medical issues. We were living in Philly at the time. So we went to some different hospitals in Philly and, um, we did not get a verbal suspicion that our son had been exposed to alcohol until he was two years old. And we started seeing a lot of, um, developmental symptoms. And, and, you know, when I talk about FASD, I'll talk about that, but, uh, that's when we first had a verbal, uh, a confirmation from a pediatric neurologist in a different hospital that we had usually taken our son to. And he said, um, and he didn't even tell us this. And this, again, everything's full circle because I remember being dismissed as a patient saying, no, 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 this is an endometriosis. You can't have endometriosis. We were being dismissed as parents. They said, oh, uh, you know, this, this is fetal alcohol effects. This doctor's telling the medical students, but he's not telling us, he's telling the medical students that he's with. And my husband and I were just like gobsmacked. We had no idea. You know, this is the first time we're hearing, you know, fetal alcohol. And we said, well, what do we do? And, and very flippantly, and I, I share this in, in, in my book, um, the doctor says, oh, just put him in early intervention. He'll be fine. And that's early intervention is key but it's a lifelong developmental disability. There's no such thing as he'll be fine. He will have improvement in some symptoms, but then he'll have other symptoms as he gets older. So from that time until our son was 15, every time something came up, whether it be education, whether it be medical, um, psychological, developmental, anything, anytime something came up and we brought up, a doctor has told us that he believes our son has been prenatally exposed to alcohol. Could this be it? We were always given a very misguided, no, no, I don't think that's it. And again, just, if you can see me on the video, I'm joining my hands, the, my son's journey, my journey, there's so many parallels in that being dismissed. That's part of it. That's part of that brokenness. When people, when the world dismisses you and says, no, 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 this can't be. And yet, you know, deep down inside that, no, this is what it is. This is what it is. And um, so hurtful. It really is. is And uh, honestly, Irene, it was harder as a mom than it was as a patient. I'd take it as a patient any day of the week versus being a mom and hearing that. So, yeah. (laughs) So So, that's, that's part one of our journey. Yeah. So as you, as you were, 
as you're finding this out, now he's 15 and whatever, you were also homeschooled. You had decided to homeschool him, right? So actually four years prior, we decided to homeschool. Yes. So it's, it, it was so he eight wasn't years. doing well in public school. No. And we tried a lot. We tried public. We tried private. We tried hybrid. We tried a whole bunch of different options. And, and as he was getting older, because he didn't have the proper FASD diagnosis, he was getting diagnoses that were somewhat accurate, but not completely accurate. It must've been terrible for his sense of self. Yes. And that's why, so that's why I, that's one of the many reasons I became a parent advocate because so many of our kids slash teens slash individuals, young adults, adults, they have secondary characteristics, things like anxiety, depression, things like that, because they're constantly being told this is not, oh, you just need to try harder. You just need to do this or, or this when it's not, when it's a physical brain-based whole body disability that's causing what you are seeing, what, what those symptoms are. People think they're willful behaviors. No, they're physical symptoms. So yeah, he wasn't officially diagnosed until he was 15 when he was hospitalized. Um, just for the record, our son lets us share his story, our story, because he wants, and, and I, I just, oh, I love my son so much. He does not want other kids to have to go through what we went through, which is 13 years of trying to get an answer. But, you know, there's another thing that I'm getting, and I could be, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm getting that part of his journey is going to probably be to help other kids who have those problems, too, and inspire them. Because I, his exposure with you and how you handled things, it, this could lead to a wonderful um, sole purpose for him. I think it will someday. Right now, he's just he's just he enjoying not mom. living at home with mom and dad. Right. <laughs> He's enjoying living with his two best friends who support him. He's enjoying working part-time in a, in a environment that is very supportive. It's, it, it's actually a, you know, he's working for a home improvement store and uh, he's enjoying, you know, the fact that he's done with homeschooling and he, he was a carpentry apprentice for three years. And I talk about that in my, our, our book, because that's, that's part of our story. rebirth yeah, was, absolutely. you know, was learning who the gift inside of him, that was part of his rebirth. So I think so. I think someday he will. Well, right now he's just enjoying, you know, kind yeah, of, but as he you. develops, I'm thinking I, about further down the line. Yes. And, and, and I think a big part of our book too, you know, and I, I, you know, told him what we were writing and he was okay with it again, because he, that's, I think that's part of his sharing it right now is him saying, mom, you can share what we went through because, you know, and then I think someday he may, you know, become a self-advocate, but again, I'm not thinking that far ahead. I'm just thinking, right, right. wow, you know, he's, he, he's living in an apartment with the two best friends and the apartment's not on fire. So that's good. <laughs> that's a win. <laughs> Tell me about homeschooling. Sure. And how that works because you put him in homeschooling and your daughter's also in homeschooling, right? You yes. Yes. And, and we have, so we have two very different adoption journeys with our kids. Um, our son is almost 20. He's 19 and a half and uh, he's done with homeschooling. We, we homeschooled him. Um, we started eight years ago uh, when he was um, like late elementary and we did it as an accommodation, which I will use that word several times during our conversation. An accommodation is where you meet somebody where they're at, whether it be physically, emotionally, psychologically, developmentally. 
And he needed that accommodation because he just did so much better learning in a one-on-one self-paced environment, which I could give him through homeschooling. So while we were homeschooling, um, my daughter's birth mother, who I have a close relationship with, we're actually, we have an open adoption with her. Our daughter came 13, our daughter came on our 20th wedding anniversary. Wow. So <laughs> if, if you could picture two totally opposite, you know, stories that those would be it. Our daughter's birth mom reached out to us and said, I'm, I'm pregnant. And my mom said that you guys wanted to adopt another child. And would you adopt? my baby. And again, on the floor, just crying, thanking God. And uh, so our daughter was born um, in in June of 2015. And that's when our son's symptoms were progressively getting worse. And that was shortly before we moved back to North Carolina. Uh, But we started homeschooling really as an accommodation. And homeschooling looks different for so many different families. And we homeschool our daughter for different reasons. Now we live in the middle of rural North Carolina. You know, we have a pig farm on one end and a horse farm on the other. And, and we just, you know, we live in a very rural area and our daughter thrives in homeschooling. We homeschool her for different reasons. You know, she learns differently, uh, but it's, it's not, um, it's not for the same reasons we homeschooled our son and she thrives. She is just, she amazes me. And I'm so thankful again, part of my rebirth story. I get to do this all again, Irene. I'm, I'm much older, you know, and I, I joke with my daughter. I'm like, you got the older version of mommy. Your brother got the younger version of mommy. And, and we joke about that, but it's such an amazing experience to be able to do it again and have that insight to say, okay, this is what I learned. Don't pressure her. She's going to read when she's going to read. She's going to do this when she's going to do this. Having that insight of lived experience I think really helps your rebirth. It really does. Wow. And I have to ask you, does she have a relationship with her mother? Oh, yes. So, so the wonderful part, the wonderful part of, we were there for her birth. Uh, My husband is in touch with her birth father. Um, I consider her birth mom to be part of our family. She really is an extended part of our family. She was actually our son's babysitter when we lived in Philly and she was one of my flute students. And, uh, when we lived in Philly and I love her dearly and actually, you know, my, my daughter's middle name is her name. Uh, and, uh, we see her, you know, a couple of times a year, we, we text very regularly, I would say a few times a week, send pictures. And she's actually in the process of, of she wants to put together a workbook for birth moms. And um, she herself, actually, she's an adoptee herself. So she's wow. on both ends of the spectrum. So we have a really, really special relationship with her. I'm really, really thankful, really, wow. really blessed. We have two different journeys. I can say it's a challenge, Irene, though, because when our son, as he his symptoms grew worse, we didn't know anything about his, his birth family's history, very little. Um, and with my daughter, we know everything. everything. So it, it really is a balance and okay. I, I, am walking this line of, you know, I, I, I need to be sensitive to my son's feelings and my son's journey, but at the same time also, you know, I, I'm part of my daughter's triad, you know, so it, it really is, um, Again, I just learn every day. I, I learn it's every amazing. day. Amazing. So yeah, homeschooling is not what you think it is. We, we, so many people, especially since the pandemic, a lot of people think homeschooling is schooling at home. And that could not be the case. That, that could be further from the case. When you homeschool, 
you take charge of your child's education. I started homeschooling in New York, which was one of the most heavily regulated homeschool states in the country. Uh, so I did things like, you know, uh, individualized homeschool plans. We did testing, all that stuff. We moved to North Carolina, which is a more moderately homeschool state. Um, really, you know, as the parent, you have the ability to say, okay, this is the curriculum. You know, we have responsibilities, which I, I follow and I can give resources. If you have any listeners that are interested in homeschooling, they can certainly contact me, but you, you, you go at your child's pace. Like for example, my daughter, she's a whiz at math and science. Oh my goodness. For six and a half. Woo. You know, but I know that for something like, for example, reading, we need to spend a little more time with that. And that's okay. That's what I love about homeschooling. And that's what I love about homeschooling. When we were homeschooling, our son is that we could support him just like we're supporting our daughter where the need is, but then we can also really let them fly and just take off where those gifts were. For our son, it was things like carpentry and computer coding. For our daughter, it's things like singing, art, science, math, you know. That's fascinating. So so part of your rebirth journey lets you become the co-founder and host of FASD Hope, which is a podcast and also a website. And it provides awareness and information for people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And you wrote this book. So tell us about all of that. And uh, you co-authored it with another lovely lady. Yes. So Cindy LaJoy is my co-author. She's my friend and I consider to be part of my tribe. And she herself is uh, an adoptive mom of five kids, three of whom have a diagnosed FASD. Her journey is much different. She, where we created this apprenticeship experience for our son, one-on-one, she and her husband from, you know, the, the studs on out created a restaurant called Buckaroo Slices and Scoops, where they created this wonderful pizza and ice cream, you know, restaurant in, in Montrose, Colorado for her kids. So they'd have a meaningful business place to work and they intentionally hire people who have, you know, different abilities. And um, so she did her experience, her new blazing new homeschool experience, much different than we did. We did ours on a much smaller, old fashioned kind of scale. Um, My brokenness um, in this rebirth of FASD Hope and Blazing New Homeschool Trails came from when our son was hospitalized. And um, that's when he finally received his diagnosis. Um, It was- he was 15. It was just before his 15th birthday, actually. And it broke me, Irene. And in fact, I I talk about it in my book. That's where I think I was completely broken. Like you and I were talking about your journey. And I I think for me physically, you know, when I had that hysterectomy and all those years before that was my physical brokenness, but me, the core of me as a mom, I was broken when he was hospitalized because he, he was away from me. He was in a, an environment that was scary for him and, and I couldn't help. I saw him one hour a day, but the miracle in it, and, and we know you and I both know that, you know, there's no accidents. The miracle in our hospital and our son's hospitalization was he finally received on paper that FASD diagnosis. And he, there are five, um, diagnoses under the FASD umbrella, he actually, you know, they, they determined that he actually had um, fetal alcohol syndrome, which is the most dramatic, the most impactful. Um, but I want people to know that 90% of, of 
fetal alcohol spectrum disorders are invisible disabilities. Therefore, there are no outward physical characteristics. Our son had physical characteristics, which again, going back to his birth, going back to everything. Now we look back and we're like, yep, yep. We understand Can now. Can you describe some of those physical characteristics and, and yes. what, what got him into the hospital? So, well, what out in some way? What got him into the hospital actually was um, 93% of children, teens, young adults that have a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder um, have a co-occurring mental health diagnosis. And that's because of the brain damage that has occurred during birth as a result of alcohol, of of the alcohol exposure. So um, some of the physical characteristics of FAS, again, only 10% of people that have an FASD have these, these outward characteristics are things like um, a smooth philtrum, you know, the space between your nose and your mouth, it's smooth. Um, a smaller head circumference, a head that's smaller in size, low, lower birth weight, um, you know, if you're able, if you know um, your child's birth records, um, a thin upper lip, um, a short palp a short fissure, a palpebral. I should know how to pronounce this. I forgive me, but um, there's a fissure between your, you know, where your eyes are and it's shortened. So it is, um, it's, it's very distinct. Um, Individuals that have FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome, have a very distinct look to their face, to their facial characteristics. But again, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, it's a spectrum. So 90% of, of these kids, teens, adults don't have these outward physical characteristics that we're talking about. Um, and it's so important to know the primary characteristics of FASD. And these are what we were, these are symptoms we were seeing as our son was getting older, things like, um, dismaturity. Dismaturity means that there's a gap between a person's chronological age and their developmental age. And we think of it, you know, you think of it as immature. Oh, they're just not acting their age. No, because of the fetal alcohol exposure, that the the brain, the cells that were damaged, the part of the brain that was damaged does not physically have that maturity. So it's a physical absence of maturity. Um, Other characteristics. And again, these were things that, that led up to, you know, the spiral, uh, things like impulsivity, distractibility, slower processing space, uh, a pace, things like auditory processing disorder, visual processing disorder, difficulty with memory, being able to remember something one day and not the other. And again, if we, we know that fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is a brain-based, it's damage from alcohol. So if we think of something like traumatic brain injury, well, you have that gap in memory. You have that inability. Some days you can remember certain things, but then other days you're not able to access that. That's what happens in fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So it often gets mistaken for, oh, they just didn't listen or they just, you know, they're not following directions. No, it's actually they can't recall what you told them. They can't process what's coming to them. Exactly. So uh, other things, you know, executive functioning is huge and that's a big buzzword in um, developmental disabilities. That's where you tell somebody, say you give them three instructions, but they're only able to remember one or two. 
you know? So adaptive functioning, that, that ability to, to follow directions, that ability to, you know, do what's expected of you. So oftentimes in fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, that gap widens, because if we think about how, you know, our society views aging, when teens get older, so much more is expected of them. However, if you have a teen, a young adult that has a developmental disability, such as fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, it stays the same. So that gap widens because say, you know, you have a child who's middle school age, well, they're expected to remember their schedule, their locker combination, this and that. They might only be able to remember one thing, maybe bringing their backpack to school. So that's where those so secondary, hard. So yes, hard. So yes. Hard. And you ha really have to have this detective, this brain-based um, vision, this brain-based lens in parenting or caregiving, teaching anything when you're working with kids that have an FASD or other brain-based disabilities. So after that diagnosis, it, I was broken. Uh, Irene, I was on the floor in a fetal position, just crying after that hospitalization, just praying and crying. And that's when, like you were saying, you heard, you know, you heard that voice telling you, Irene, you know, this is, this is what you're going to do. Right. That's when for me, again, I, you know, I, I am deeply founded in my faith. That's when I could hear God saying, you're going to help people from this, just like, just like you and your experience. Right. And that's when I was like, okay, let's do this. And the next day, the day of his discharge, his discharge nurse was reading me the diagnoses and the medications and this and that. And I'm frantically writing everything. And at the time I have a, you know, a two-year-old daughter and, and, you know, I just, things are just, you know, yeah, life was very, very busy. And, and the last thing she said was he has a diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome, which is one of the several diagnoses you can have un under the FASD umbrella. And I just, I just, again, dropped my knees because I knew that having that diagnosis, that official diagnosis, which we had been seeking for 13 years after that first verbal, you know, um, suspect, uh, having that diagnosis would open doors for him and for us, not nearly as many doors that should be open, but it would start opening doors. And that's when my rebirth started in saying, okay, you are going to be an advocate and you are going to learn as much as you can about this so that other parents do not feel as lonely and as scared on this journey as you and your husband and your family did. Wow. Wow. And, and that's how FASD Hope was born. That's how this book was born. That's how my life was reborn. Amazing. Well, the other thing I found really curious to um, learn about you is that you're a mental health, you are, you're certified for, as a mental health, for mental health first aid. What yes. the heck is that? 
please. So short, shortly, one of the people need help with mental health, but (laughs) (laughs) so you can just Google mental health first aid. It's actually global. And I took it shortly after our son's hospitalization because I wanted to know the symptoms of when someone's in crisis. You know, our son received a co-occurring mental health diagnosis along with his FASD diagnosis. So I wanted to know, okay, what were the symptoms that I needed to look for, you know, that, that were, okay, this is stable. This is unstable. This is crisis. This is, you know, just scary. Um, So I took this eight hour course, mental health first aid, and it's essentially very similar to CPR where you are given and it's for anybody can, can take it, you know? And, and so I, the class I was in, there were parents like me, uh, there were some professionals like teachers, social workers, and it's an eight hour class. And it really just works on identifying. Um, and there's an acronym that goes with it, A-L-G-A-E. And it's really identifying, assessing, identifying, and then just evaluating, okay, is this person truly in crisis or is this person, you know, do we need to call 911 or call an emergency mental health, you know, um, response team, or, you know, is this person, can we call the doctor, that kind of thing. And it's, it was great for me. It, It really was helpful for me. And I highly recommend it. If you're able to take it, not only do they have it for adults, but they also have it for children too, which is really important because we know, especially since COVID, so many kids, so many teens, so many adults are having mental health crises. So being able to say, okay, um, and this, again, you're not an expert. You're not being trained to be an expert. It's just like CPR. If you see somebody in distress, okay, this is what to do. That's essentially what that training is. And it really helped me. It helped me Does out a lot. Does it also help you identify? I mean, like, you're it not that, like, if you see someone who's got schizophrenia, you don't actually diagnose that or anything. No, no, no. So of, the, of you're aware of, um, are they aware of their surroundings? Exactly. Are they aware of their surroundings? Are they able to, you know, there's, there's a whole, this, you get this manual, you get this book, you, you get recertified every, I believe five years and you really just, you learn. Okay. So like, obviously if a person is choking, you know, can you talk that kind of thing? It's the same kind of training. Again, it's not diagnosing. It's just being able to say, okay, this person clearly is, you know, either uh, delusional. This is these, this is how you identify it. Or this person is, you know, clearly in distress, that kind of thing. So it's really just, it's help for, you know, the, the, the common everyday person. And you can to, guide people to who can exactly to say, Hey, I think we should call, you know, 911 or, Hey, I think we should call, you know, that, uh, emergency response, you know, a medical, you know, mental health kind of thing, or, Hey, we need to call this person's doctor, that kind of thing. So it's really just, you know, an extra set of eyes to say, okay, you know, I I think this person is in distress. And and as a parent, you know, as a parent of, of someone, you know, of, of a young adult now who has a co-occurring, uh, mental health diagnosis, it's, it's been very helpful for me. It really has, because it's, it's helped me to say, okay, this is when I should call his doctor, or this is when I know, okay, he's just dysregulated because of so-and-so. 
Um, so I highly recommend it. And I'll give you the link to share with your listeners. Um, it's, it's just called mental health first aid. Is that and, on uh, your, on your website also? I think so. I think so. If it's not, I'm going to put it on there. Put it on there because we'll direct <laughs> people right to your website. Yes. And I know yeah, that yeah. you were given an honor in 2019 from the state of North Carolina. Come on. Oh my goodness. It was, I, it ahead. was such a surprise. So uh, every state has a parent disability organization. And every state has, um, in North Carolina, it's called the Exceptional Children's Assistance Center, I believe. Forgive me for, for not getting the acronym. Um, but it's called ECAC. And basically, it's, it's the nonprofit for the state for parents of children, you know, teens through adults or children through adults uh, with any type of disability. And um, <laughs> It was the first and the last because they haven't done this since COVID. So 2019, literally the, the year before COVID, they had um, their first annual parent leadership summit. So if you were a parent of a child with a disability, um, you could apply for this scholarship to go to this training. It was a weekend training and to learn how to become a mentor and to learn how to become an advocate and to learn how to do what, what you know, and, and it was wonderful. I met so many parents and learned so many things and made so many connections. Um, and only 50 people were chosen in North Carolina and I was one of them. And I was just so thankful. It was such a wonderful weekend. And again, it was, it was part of my rebirth. It really was part of my saying, okay, you know, you go from mom, music therapist, rec therapist to mama bear advocate to podcast or to author things I would never associate with my name, things that I know now in I'm, I'm 50 things that I know now in my 50 years, everything was leading up to this. Of course meant to be. So here's your chance to tell everyone in our grief and rebirth audience, all the ways to connect with you while you frantically add uh, about mental health first aid on your site. <laughs> yes. Like, yes. I'm going to have my husband add that. And all that. <laughs> so, so you can hear us. Our podcast is FASD hope and we're wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not on YouTube. I'm sorry. I'm audio only. I just, that's, that's just the way I like it. Uh, but you can also visit our um, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're also on LinkedIn. You can also visit our website. My husband uh, works so hard at, at updating. Uh, it's fasdhope.com. Uh, and we liken ourselves to be like that, that post in the middle of a country road that just kind of points to places where we're parents with lived experience. We're not clinicians, we're not experts, we're not professionals. We're just parents who are on this journey who can say, Oh, you're looking for this. Let me point you in this direction. And I'm so thankful. Um, we just released our 106 episode. We've been a little busy. <laughs> um, and I'm so Which thankful. It's amazing how many people have this, this issue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one in 20, a recent I mean, study right? in 2018 done by Dr. Philip May and UNC one in 20 first graders are estimated to have an FASD. Wow. And it's not just an adoption foster care issue. It's an everything issue. If you think Irene about, and I'll get back to my contacts in a minute, but if you think about how many pregnancies in this country are unplanned and how many women and men, how many people consume alcohol and then add COVID to that, add the stress of COVID, which we know 
um, research has shown that in maternal age women since COVID, and this was done in 2020, so I can only imagine it's higher, there was a 40% in, increase in binge drinking among women who are of maternal age. Um, and then you add that, you know, typically you don't find out until you're pregnant until about six weeks or so. And by then people think, oh, I'll stop. That's okay. Or, you know, maybe they don't stop or maybe they cut down. No amount, no amount of alcohol is safe. And there is no stigma. There's so much stigma in this disorder, but there should not be because it could happen to anyone, of course, anywhere. So um, that's really the passion behind FASD Hope. Um, I also co-authored this book, uh, Blazing New Homeschool Trails, Educating and Launching Teens with Developmental Here. Disabilities. There, there we go. There's our country post in the middle of the country road. That's, <laughs> that's what we do. Um, and that's available on Amazon. And again, my husband and I, and um, you know, my co-author, Cindy and I, we really just hope to be resources for for anyone out there uh, looking for help on this lonely road of uh, parenting, caregiving, living with uh, FASD or any other brain-based disability. Well, it's not so lonely now because you're there as a uh, guide, but if they want to find you, is it just FASD? They don't have to spell Vicky yep. nope. nope, nope, nope. FASDhope.com. Or if you want to email me, and I'll, I'll share this information, just natalie at FASDhope.com. That's perfect. the easiest way to get in That's touch perfect. with me. And what is the Natalie tip for finding rebirth, reinvention, and joy in life? So I'm going to share with you one of my favorite quotes by one of my favorite authors. And I actually shared this when our podcast launched in October of 2020. It's by C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis. Oh, yes. And his quote is, there are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. And that is my tip, is that you, life is like a spiral staircase. This wonderful guest who I just interviewed gave me this analogy. Life is like a spiral staircase. We can only see a couple of steps. We can't see what's happening. And we need to just find that joy and find that strength in just getting from that one step to the next step. Don't think about down the road. Just think about getting from step to step. I guess that would be my best I think that's, <laughs> that's so wise and so true. Natalie, thank you from my heart, really. Thank you so much for educating us about FASD and sharing your important, and this is such an important and inspiring story of rebirth and reinvention with us. I personally applaud you for the ways you've triumphed over daunting obstacles, found rebirth, and the truly remarkable ways you've reinvented your life. You're an inspiration. And I thank you from my heart for this enlightening and heartwarming interview. And here's a reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and especially on YouTube. Please subscribe and hit notify to make sure you'll get the inspiring new interviews like this one with Natalie coming your way. Thank you so much. And if you'd like to be part of this special Rebirth series, please send me an email to hello at ireneweinberg.com. As I like to say, to be continued, many blessings, and bye for now. Thank you.